Hello and welcome to This Climate Business, the podcast about turning the climate crisis into opportunity. Please follow us on social media and rate the podcast as it helps others to find us. I hope you enjoy the show. Emily King is a food systems expert and the author of a new book, ReFood. It's about the need to reimagine and reconstruct the food system. The book is timely with food prices at decade highs, our key growing regions lashed by storms, and of course, global logistics affected by things such as the pandemic and now a war in Ukraine. Plus, it just seems like every day there's another climate issue to deal with in our food system. It seems like a great moment to talk about food, Emily. Thanks for joining me on this climate business. Morena, thank you for having me here. Um, It's hard writing a book. How did you, being a busy mum, being a business person, (laughs) find time to write a book? Um, You know, I'm not sure really how I found the time, but I was very driven and um, I had been thinking about writing a book on food systems for a little while and then COVID hit and it sounds almost cliche now to say that, Um, but that wasn't, you know, COVID wasn't the normal um, sort of have lots of time to bake muffins and things. I had a newborn um, as well and things just sort of all came together and I thought, well, this is actually even more important now to get this out and I just started just started writing it um, in all the spare moments I could and I found it really helpful for myself um, to reconcile some of the things that were going on in the food system at the time to mm. also be getting it down in print. You'd already done a lot of thinking about this, so was, was it kind of... Uh, Cathartic, getting yeah, all those yeah, thoughts yeah. down. Very much so. Um, I, I don't want to say a brain dump, but there is there is a, an element of that to it. Um, definitely, it was very visceral and very. Yeah, there wasn't writer's block. I could just. Get it out. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's a bit of anger in there too. Are you frustrated with things? Tell tell us a, uh, what I mean. Anger in the sense of I think there's there's a bit of passion. You know, uh, yeah. what's wrong with our food system? Interesting. Um, well, you, there's many elements that could be improved, and I guess that's the crux of the book. Um, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say I'm angry. In fact, I'm I'm very pragmatic and hopeful, and I've worked in the food system for a decade on this these topics, so I'm not coming at it from a um, yeah, I'm coming at it with deep knowledge and a very nuanced perspective. Um, and I believe we can make lots of changes. I've seen them happen. I work with people constantly on this and I see them making amazing changes. Um, but I do know that we're up against a lot of issues in the system. And the point of ReFood is to get people to actually see the system. For many, it's the first time um, when they read the book, I guess. Um, Even thinking about food as a system, is yeah. a, it's a leap in yeah. imagination or thought, isn't it? Thinking yeah. past your meal um, and, and what you're cooking or planning to have or, or what you don't have um, and thinking past the health and nutrition elements, which is what we've been really programmed um, over you know the past few decades to, to think of it from. Um, and so this broadens the perspective of the reader and, and gets people to think, systemically whether they realize it or not by tracing the food system um, which is um, in the book I've, I've laid it out in three parts grow which is how you how foods grow and make how it's made and manufactured and then nourish which is how it's eaten or not eaten by people and so 
um, through those three parts of the system, analysing and looking at the different parts of it. I hope that that broader perspective helps people to, um, yeah, see the bigger picture, but also the opportunities within that. Um, so while there are definitely challenges in the book is you know, chapter by chapter laying out those challenges. Um, there's also hope and there's also there's also the need for New Zealanders to pause and think of our place and our history and our time of, of who we are as a country with our food system, how it was made, how it came to be in our country mm. and where we want it to go. And I think that might not be an explicit aim of the book, but it's definitely a strong current in there. Mm. Um there, let's look at some of the specifics in the book. You talk often about the impact of the food system on farmers and growers. What are the – and there's some of the obvious challenges for farmers and growers is this um, – that they are the receiving end of, of price signals that are typically quite low for them, right? So do you think that farmers and growers are underpaid for what they do? Well, I talk about – farmers and growers throughout the book because they're the core of our food system, they feed us. Um, the first part, Grow, focuses on that. Grow is a bigger part of the book because that's actually where the biggest um, impact and the, the mm -hmm. biggest start of the system is. Um, as to the price, well, you know, there's as many different farmers and growers as there are commodities out there. And I think that we tend to lean on the idea of dairy in New Zealand, which is many of our growers, uh, many of our farmers, 10,000 or more. Um, but there's many other growers too. We have our horticulture, we have, um, we even have our viticulture, we have our market gardens, we have everything that we eat really coming out of the land. And so the prices, I mean, that's a really nuanced question for each of those different sectors. But Ultimately, many of the experts I spoke to across the book felt like, you know, the farmers do get a, a raw deal. They, the, as the um, food increases in value across the value chain, um, then those companies make the money off of it, right? So once it's left the farm gate in its primary, um, you know, being, <laughs> whether that's an apple or a, um, a, a tanker of milk, um, it's then processed into something more um, mm. and then the value's added. And often that's done out of New Zealand and it's done at the profit of many businesses we'll never know about or, or ever see. Um, so it's really an interesting, one interesting element, I think, of growing food in our country. Mm. The process of adding value is often also a process of stripping nutrition out of the original commodity, isn't it? Um, for instance, if you go from um, I don't know a wheat or a grain, and you end up in a in a highly sweetened, processed, and and plastic packaged um, muesli bar, um, that that process. And you, you in your book you you talk about the the sort of two parts to that, isn't there? There's the um, what happens to the original commodity that's lost its nutritional value in that process, but also what's happened to the value that's lost to the country because that is typically done overseas, right, and, mm. and comes back to us as a packaged product. Yeah, well, and it might not come back to us, but yes, I mean, there's that. There, that's the two parts of the value and value chain. But you know, not all of not all of the products are turned into nutritionally poor things. Um, however, often the, the general rule of thumb is the more processed and often packaged the, the product, um, the less good it is for us. Um, and I think something that I explore in the book 
um, is that as a country we actually produce really high quality nutrient dense food which is primarily fruits, vegetables, um, dairy products and meat products. Um, we don't produce that many grains and um, rice and things at export level but um, in terms of like yeah meat and fruit and vegetables they are from a nutritional standpoint very highly um, yeah, they're mm. high quality and high mm. nutrient dense and we ship them off and then we have this crazy sort of paradox where we import um, the nutritional value of the food we import is quite poor and I would call it crappy I think in the book um, which is highly processed. I told you there was anger <laughs> in the book. <laughs> um, yeah, so there's there's this kind of um, ironic thing happening and as we import that low quality food we're importing the health problems that come with that and it's mm. often cheaper and it's being processed in countries abroad for, at a cheaper rate than what we can do here often as well and so then that comes on to the consumer and people end up buying it um, and then buying the associated health problems and then that falls on the burden of the population um, with the health system with you know the non-communicative diseases and things that come out of that yeah. so yeah. And there's a sort of a delicious irony. Well, it's an undelicious irony mm. um, in that Michael Pollan and others, um, uh, I think Elaine Rush, you know, you've, you've interviewed uh, Elaine Rush um, talking about that the ingredients is where the food value is. And the less processing there is, typically the, the more nutritional value there is. And yet that's the bit that is commoditized and least valued. It's the, the added valued bit comes in when it's had all the other <laughs> crap put into it, right? Do you have, you talk about solutions and hope, do you have any kind of idea about how whole foods, commodity foods, originally kind of high nutrition ingredient kind of foods, how could that class of foods be more rewarded. Mm. How can growers be be more rewarded for growing and selling yeah, quality I mean, nutritional food? Quality products? nutritional products are what we do really do tra traditionally do really well here. Mm. I think the part that's really important and, and maybe just got missed a little bit there as well is that we're not feeding all of our people, and so um, and this is the where I bring it in in the book is that. You know, we make a lot of money for our country and a lot of people off of exporting these really high-quality foods. Um, but there's a gap there where we are not feeding people um, and we don't have affordable fruit and vegetables and access to that by most people in our country mm. at the moment. And so um, when we're looking at value, we can reframe that a little bit and think, well, what's the value to our country if our you know, children are fed um, and what's the value in the future um, to to our country having um, well-fed people and contributing to society um, at their full potential. And I think that um, it's, they're not, I mean, yeah, it's hard because they are connected and they're not connected, right? Like we've done a great job of separating out all of the parts of the food system and we've done a great job of separating out trade and saying, you know, that's that part and health is that part over there. But mm -hmm. actually what I continuously advocate for is looking systemically at the full system, at all the parts of it, right through to health and access and also growing and saying, look, if we redesign this in a way that ensures that 
the people like the ultimate goal of the food system is actually to feed people and right now it's not working. Um, up to 20% of people in New Zealand don't have access to food, um, let alone of any quality that we want to start talking about being high, um, you know, high nutrient, high quality food. Um, we're talking about people being able to just get food. And so um, if the purpose of the food system is to feed people, then we're failing. And if it's to feed people healthy, high-nutrient-dense food, then, we're, of course, we're also failing. And if it's to look after the land and the soil and the waterways and reduce climate change, well, we're not doing well there either. So um, what is the purpose of the food system in our country? What do we want to do here? Do we want to feed our people? Yes. Um, do we want to make a good income for our farmers and growers? Yes. So how do we... Um, achieve both of those things and those are some of the big questions that we really need to be asking ourselves as a country when we're in the face of you know rising costs of food climate change um, health crises across the, the globe um, from poor food choices or not choices so I think they're very big questions and they're all interconnected and mm. I believe that with refood I'm getting people to think about them in a different way because I mean, I would like someone to point to me, when have we ever sat down and designed the food system? Like when, you know, we haven't. It's been privatised since pretty much after World War II um, and it's been left to be that way. Um, and I think that as a result, we've got some pretty big issues that society bears the brunt on. Given that it is a systemic discussion and you're looking at it at a really high level and you have these tensions within that, right? We want farmers to be paid more, but we also want food to be more affordable. Those exist in a, a contradictory kind of way, right? But what you're saying is, well, actually, you can't just oppose those as binary problems. There's a there's a high level discussion that has to happen around systematic systematic change. But there must be little pockets of success that give you clues as to when a system is working. Do you have any examples of yeah. hopeful yeah. Uh, activity? I hope I hope so, Vincent. <laughs> Throughout the book I do try and put in examples and and be optimistic and, and help people um, reframe things. And yeah, just back to your point, I don't you know, they are the the sort of point we were talking about with farmers being paid more and people having food. I mean, that's not the people without food's fault and it's not the farmer's fault. They're actually both parts of a very complicated system that hasn't been completely working well for either of those groups of people. Mm. So um, I don't want to, you know, start saying it has to be the farmers feeding the hungry people. It's completely far more complex than that. Um, but there are really good examples of, um, like, locally produced market gardens with affordable vegetable boxes going out to people that um, support and pay growers um, a fair and if not living wage and also produce high quality soil and high nutrient dense food at an affordable rate and we have many of those they're not usually the same growers that are exporting at large scale and so you know one thing we can look at is how can we sustain um the two different purposes there like mm -hmm. where, are, where are our growers that are feeding our people um, and and we do a lot of and I point to it in the book a lot of our food that's produced here is fed here like people eat it you know like our broccolis and things they are grown in New Zealand and they're eaten by New Zealanders mm. um, you know we might export a lot of squashes and a lot of kiwi fruit and apples but you know you're not necessarily eating those ones um, in New Zealand so it's about understanding that there's I mean there are so many amazing 
little social enterprises and, and other things starting to scale up that are feeding people. Um, are you thinking of things like Perfectly Imperfect? Oh, that's a great example. And, you know, lately we've seen the things like the wonky box, which are vegetables that would have been discarded and wasted. Um, but we also know from our food rescue agencies and our food banks that there is such a demand right now for food from people. People mm. are really feeling the pinch with the um, rising costs of food and also the cost of living. So we've also got this um, other tension here that's massive um, and and probably needs far, far bigger um changes to happen, then then our um, volunteers and um, charities are able to really cope with. Um, yeah. Mm. Um, there's also a lot that's right with the food system. And I uh, was looking the other day at food prices thinking food prices are really high. They're, at, they're I think, at, at, at decade-level highs. But actually, since 1929, food prices have fallen Hugely, uh, as a proportion of um, household income, they've fallen from around sixty percent to somewhere between eight and ten percent, and and the the increase lately has kind of driven it up to maybe about eleven percent of household income. This is across the sort of OECD countries, right? Um, that's the result of, I suppose, the Green Revolution. You know, this this fertiliser-driven revolution in productivity across the world. And at the same time, we've added 4 billion people to the planet. That's actually a, a, an achievement, isn't it, to feed that many more people and for food prices to come down? There's a lot in there. Um, first, I would say, okay, so that's blanket... Pros- I, I haven't checked those stats across the OECD, um, perhaps, but there's... You know, not everybody, not everybody has that um, proportion of their income on food. People in New Zealand spend in our lower socioeconomic areas spend far higher proportions of their um, mm. income on food. Um, so it's a problem with averages, isn't uh, yeah. it? Yeah, and so that's a that's a challenge with that. And also the other challenge is, while the Green Revolution might have fed people, I mean, you know, the impacts of that on the societies and the cultures in countries that were. Um, yeah, basically test pilots on that um, in India and Mexico and other countries. Um, uh, you'd have to really, um, yeah, you'd have some reckoning to do to argue with people there that that really was a good thing. Um, so yes, we do feed a lot of people in a large scale. Um, if we're zooming out now, so now we're not looking just at the New Zealand food system, we're looking at the global. And I think perspective of what parts of the system you're talking about is really important. Mm. If you're looking at the global food system and you're looking at crude numbers of population and health, then yes, the food system has fed more people um, and got people out of poverty in countries that would have otherwise not had access to some foods. With it though, and this is the caveat on the whole system, with it, it's come at the cost to land, to indigenous people, to soils, waterways, and to also health. So this cookie-cutter approach um, of large-scale um, yeah, high, highly monocultural, which is just growing one crop in one area over mm. and over again for a very la- long period of time. Um, this approach, while it might have increased 
um, production and food and fed people, it's come at a cost. And I think we have to recognise both sides. We have to recognise that, yes, people have been fed and there are really good arguments for that. And then we have to recognise that actually there's also been impacts of it. So I don't think we can say it's at all perfect and a great thing. And I also can't don't think we can say it's a completely negative thing because we have gotten people out of poverty probably from it and also um, helped. So I think it's a very nuanced statement. I think that people should be very cautious about saying, yes, but we've fed the world because there's far more to it mm-hmm. than just that. It's not just about There's always the, the yes, yes buts, isn't there, kind of <laughs> Well, there's always the impact, yeah. and I think that's the point with ReFood. When I bring it back to the book and bring it back to New Zealand and hone in on our national system, which, by the way, is a product of that global um, revolution that we've been talking about. Um, but when we look at our national system too, we can see that – you know, there are there are great things and there are wonderful things with our food system and there are wonderful stories about it. And in fact, that's where the hope is and that's where and why I work in this because there's so many amazing things about food. Yeah. But there are impacts and I think that people are probably not always aware of what those impacts are. And I think that we need to be aware of them as humans, as citizens, as consumers or whatever we want to call ourselves, as people of this world, we need to know that there is more to it and that we have an impact and, and you know, the, this podcast is, is about climate change as well and I think it's important to understand how the food system impacts on that and how it's, um, it's a big part of where we're going because the climate is also impacting the food system as well as the food system impacting on the climate. Yeah, absolutely it is. There's, there's both and, isn't there? Mm. Um we might come back to climate. I do have a, a question for you on that. Um, but I just wanted to um, ask you to respond to uh, – there was an article written by Eric Crampton, an uh, economist. Have you come across that, who was responding to, I think, one of your – either one of your articles or an interview you did? Um, and uh, so the challenge is this um, – we are great exporters of food in New Zealand and and that's on the one hand a great benefit because, you know, food is our business and yet there's this irony that, um, as you say, 20% of our population are not getting nutritionally rich food. Um, I think that was the, the statistic that you said or at least it was in that kind of um, – within k- kui of that. There you go. Fine. Um, but – how do we reconcile this idea of being a food export nation and a and underfeeding or not nutritionally feeding our population? And is is being a food exporter necessarily a bad thing? Or can we continue to be a food exporter and feed our domestic populations well? Well, yeah, I think we need to be thinking of it in a more holistic way, as I said right at the start of this interview. Um there's, you know, they're not. Then, if we look at the full food system and we look at the, the way it's des- hasn't been designed, but the way it is, um, then if we look at it again and think, well, how can we make this work so that people are fed and we can also earn um, as a country value from from producing high quality food? Um, I think we're in a really great position in New Zealand because we have a relatively low population. Um, compared to most countries in the world. We have a lot of space. We have um, overall quite a brilliant 
climate for growing food and we have very good soils um, historically for this too. So um, we have a lot of strengths um, and which has made us um, a top food producing nation in this world. Um, and so I think if we are looking at the system, then we should be thinking about how we can do both, as I said again previously however I don't want to I don't want to say that they're completely connected right there are so many nuances between the growing of the food and getting it to the people and there are so many parts of that um, that come from the food system but there are other social systems and, and other parts of society that that interweave um, such as the housing situation or location and food knowledge like there are many things they're not it's not like your words it's not binary they're not one and then the other so mm-hmm. Um, I think, yes, and it's something that we can talk about as a country. I mean, I'm very happy to be talking about it and getting people to think about that. Um, yeah, I mean, they're not – yeah, the connection is there, but it's it's connected through a very large, complicated web of a food system, I guess is my answer. Yeah, the, um, the, the farmers like getting a premium, and in fact there's, there's been so much effort over the years, hasn't there, with trying to get premium prices for our lamb and for our dairy products. And so to, to provide farmers with that return, the current mechanism is requires a high price at the at the retail end. And, and so to get export quality fruit and veggies in a domestic setting, we've got to compete with that global price. Is that the Is there a way to unpack that? It seems like it's such an intertwined system of kind of logistics and um, and payments. I'm I'm actually having real trouble understanding how that could change. Hmm. Is that because I'm in the system and I can't imagine what a, a paradigm well, I shift think it, would I be? I think it's worth imagining a change. I don't think it needs to come at the expense of our farmers and growers, though. I think that you know we export ninety five percent of our dairy, so. We don't see any of that, and most of it ends up, um, you know, dehydrated in its in its form um, and and sent away to be then used and and um, I guess higher value products come from it. So, mm-hmm. and meat has always been a challenge for our farmers to get the prices that they actually deserve for it, um, and now they're competing. But there are there are, these things are really worth talking about and discussing. For example, we've just recently signed the EU trade deal and there's there are um, clauses in there which bind us into having climate um, and other sustainable initiatives for the way we do things. And so it's not only New Zealand that's thinking or needs to think about these issues. If we want to stay on top of our game as a top exporting food nation, we need to be aware of the sustainability as in the, uh, I guess, environmental sustainability, so the environmental impacts and also the health impacts Mm -hmm. of producing food because we're not the only ones um, that need to think about this. Other countries are putting pressure on us to do that um, because for them and their consumers it's important. Now, whether that's a um, trying to be a trade restrictive measure or something, that's, I mean, I'm not a trade expert, I'm a food systems expert, so I look at how we can take our food system and improve it in our country um, for better health and better environmental impacts. I'm not a trade food expert, so um, that remains to be seen and I'm interested to see what happens there with that. But um, I think, yeah, I think we need to um, have a bigger conversation uh, 
nationally or however we want to do it and hopefully refood spark some of that we need to have a bigger conversation about how we design the food system now we've focused a lot in this interview on farmers and growers and the price of food and feeding people um, but within the book and within the system there are so many other things um, there are so many more links in the chain that happen um, right through and there are a lot of impacts that occur along the way um, positive and mm-hmm. arguably negative as well so um, in the book, I also look at packaging and I also look at food waste. Um, I also look at soil, waterway, climate change and the impacts on our health. And I think um, what we should be thinking about are those things um, as a country and, and what we can be doing to improve them. Um, yeah. Mm, good. Well, let's talk about climate because, um, as you say, uh, we, we need a thin excuse to talk about anything in this podcast that, um, <laughs> uh, that is ostensibly about climate. But what are the implications for our changing climate for New Zealand? And I guess I've got growers in mind, but it's not just growers, right? As you say, you know, there are yeah. so many other parts of the system that will be affected by climate change and contribute to climate change. What, what are the things that really stand out for you? Yeah, it's complex climate change. It's, it's a really tricky one when we come to food. So, the, you know, the start point <clears throat> is that 30% of the global food system more or less um, the statistics look at about that amount. Um, 30% is from food production and 70% is energy. That's a crude split of um, emissions. And and so it's worth considering food. Of course we all have to eat and to survive as a species and so it's no surprise that we have an impact and, and that should be recognised in these discussions, I think. Um, so the impacts... Yeah, so then there's this double-edged thing with climate change where um, food produces emissions and also for production, manufacturing, distribution, logistics, food waste, um, not only production. I think that our farmers and growers um, are often, you know, talked about a lot and they're talked about a lot because that's where most of the emissions happen for a product on mm. land. Mm. Um, but that shouldn't be... Um, letting the manufacturers and the distributors and those other people involved across the supply chain globally off the hook. Um, There's a lot more to be said and done there. Um, So there's impacts, that's the start point. But at the same time, when climate change hits, as we've seen this year with, um, well, extreme storm events, for example, because that can be an impact of climate change or a drought, it's often our farmers and growers that that suffer the worst. Mm -hmm. And so there's it's... Yeah, it's a massive conversation that needs to um, be had. And when we're talking about impacts, we're talking about adaptation, which is different from um, mitigation. Mitigation is reducing your climate impacts. Adaptation is adapting to try and continue um, as you were in some way or form as a result of the change of that impact. So, um, yeah, there's two sides to it and it's it happens right on food. And I think... Um, that's a very important conversation. Is regenerative farming and regenerative practices a key to surviving climate change? And what does it even mean? Right, so that's an interesting one. Um, I don't know if about surviving climate change. I think there's nuanced impacts and effects of climate change across a whole lot of systems. Um, regenerative, if you're talking about regenerative agriculture, so there's a lot of... Um, talk and also 
people practicing different ways of farming, which um, increases the soil's, um, um, I guess we could say, life um, by planting diverse crops um, and feeding a diverse array of plants um, to animals, if that's what they're doing, or growing plants um, with more diversity and soil um, as as the foundation of it. Mm. Um, and so I think, I think that we need to explore regenerative agriculture more um, and understand it further. Um, consumers are still not overly aware of, of what it is, mm. um, but there is a movement of, of farmers and growers who are practicing it and they're seeing really great results on their soil and their um, productivity and also their communities and some really great benefits of it. There's still a lot of science um, to come in around how much the soil can really sequester and um, what that means um, as a country. Um, and I think, yeah, I think it's definitely, I think we need as many solutions as we can um, and I think we need to be exploring as many options as we can kind of as quickly as possible um, and looking at those solutions. So whether or not it's um, a way of surviving climate change, I'm, I'm not sure I can go that far yet to say yes, um, but I think that, you know, we need diversity in land use and we need diversity in how we're making things and there's some really great things happening for farmers and growers who are practising regenerative agriculture. So you would see regenerative practices, even if they're emergent, as one of these hopeful activities that's providing uh, a kind of suggestion about how we can escape the industrialised food system. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of great reports anecdotally from farmers and also there's some science starting to come in around it. It's still quite, it's it's been going on for a number of years. It's not new in that sense, but it's also um, this being, whether it's being measured and um, if, how effective it is, is actually very challenging. It's challenging for all farmers to measure their impacts on things like soil because you need to be measuring that on the changes to the soil you know, per hectare per year. And, mm, and that's a really yeah. big investment and it's actually, it's not impossible, but, you know, for everyday farmers to do it, it's, it's really challenging. And so I think that people need to really empathise with the scale and enormity of how difficult this is to measure and accurately say. And I'm not a climate scientist, so I really need to make that clear. But I, I do think that um, if we look at it from a food systems perspective, any improvements to soil, waterways and human health and social aspects um, from it is, is a good thing. And so that's that's great for those farmers that that's happening for. But I think at the same time we need to empathise with farmers that are not practising regenerative because there's some you know strong reasons why they wouldn't be. Um, and I think that, um, yeah, there's within what we would call conventional agriculture, there's um, a whole spectrum of different practices that happen. Um, and so I think that we can't just paint one brush across farming and say, you know, right. all farming practices are bad. It's absolutely not true. There's really great farmers mm. under the probably conventional umbrella doing really great land use practices as well. So I think we just have to be very careful in New Zealand. Um, I think we've put farmers out um, of, the, of the question a little bit because we've painted this picture of it all being terrible but I actually think that there's really great solutions that can come from there and the only way we're going to see that happen is if we're really engaging with farmers and listening to them about you know why things are happening the way they are I mean right. um, this is not an excuse it's not to excuse poor practice but I'm just talking about 
generally, um, I think we've got it a little bit wrong in our country to separate um, our farmers out and paint them as bad with with climate change. Mm. Should we be eating less meat? Statistically, yes. Um, From a health perspective, we consume apparently too much. Um, I go into that in health in the book. Um, And statistically, from a health perspective, but then also from a climate perspective, yes. Um, I I think the stats are out there around reductions to... um, improve yeah not only human health but also the health of the planet but um i think that there's different ways of farming and what i talk about in the book um from what the experts have told me is that you know it's how the how the land use it's um it's how the animal or the the meat is grown and not necessarily where it's grown that has the impact so um better land use practices um and better quality meat is something we do do well in new zealand not everywhere but we do um, and can do it. So I think that's worth um, looking into and supporting. And then, of course, you know, people can make their own choices about whether or not, well, not actually that's incorrect. Not everyone gets to make the choice around food. I, I think that's kind of one of the, that. Yeah, one of the main things you talk about really is like people in food deserts, for instance, in urban settings, mm. their choices are so limited, aren't they? Yeah. Um, and I think that's that's such a well-made point in your book. Let's talk, let's finish on joy in your book you talk about you know food we've talked about nutrition we've talked about systems and economics and so on but Mm. food is also it's communal it's social it's spiritual it has connections to history and heritage Mm. um i'd be curious to know what role does food play in your family you've got two kids you you live in the beautiful waiheke um you know where where does joy come in for you uh, when you take well, your sort of academic <laughs> your thinking hat off yeah i mean food the food system is a great a great thing um generally with positive aspects to it right like we've got a lot of room for improvement as as we've gone on about but the great thing about food is that it connects people it brings people together um and it brings communities together and we're seeing across our country really great examples of community based food initiatives where people get together and um, come up with solutions for their communities to help people have better access to food, um, whether that's growing food in a different way, sharing it, perhaps rescuing it, um, or or whatever. And so I think there's and then then there's the other side for those who are fortunate enough to be able to afford to you know go to restaurants and and buy nice food. There's great connections that people have there too. Or if you're privileged enough to be able to host people um, and share food, um, that's also a great thing. So I think, you know, historically we've always been connected through food and personally that's why I work in in this topic because I really believe that the solutions are quite simple. Mm. Um, throughout my book I point to solutions and I really do point to simplifying things. I think a simple connection with someone over food is is a really great thing and I've seen it, you know, um, make a difference um, to you know relationships and people and, and everything like that, um, but also just the simple simple act of um, yeah sharing food is something that we've done for thousands and thousands of years and it's also across cultures as well it's a common thing right people connect with a certain dish or a certain way of mm. cooking and I think um, I think there's a lot of room there to explore that um, and and there are some neat community initiatives that that do that now. Um, and I think, 
We've also got amazing, you know, restaurants and chefs and really cool people doing great food things in our country that should be celebrated. Um, and so nothing in ReFood is to take that away. It's just to get us to do this a lot better in mm. our country and mm. do it in a way that's super positive and that's supporting the people that need supporting in this. And I'm unapologetic about there being hard questions in that book for us to grapple with as a country because we haven't and we are not talking about this enough um, at a higher level. So, you know, I think I think what's great about the topic of food is that you everybody eats or has to eat. Not everybody has access to food, but fundamentally we all need to. So regardless of what you do, um, you will be faced with the food system at some point in your day, whether that's cooking or shopping or preparing food. Um, yeah. And then you might also have a job that's part of the food system. You might drive a food truck or um, run a sheep and beef farm or you might work in a supermarket or whatever. So there's there are thousands of people, hundreds of thousands employed across the food system. And there's also influence and a sphere of influence there that people can have. Or you might, you know, run a big food business and and also have the potential to make a change there. So I think I have been saying with ReFood that there are these two hats at least that a lot of people can wear. Um, and even if you're just wearing one hat, which is preparing your, your food for your family, you can come at that with a slightly different perspective if mm -hmm. you think about the full food system. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, where the change lies and I think that's where the solutions are. Hence, ReFood. Yeah, let's re rethink it and redo it and or actually just design it or, you know, come up with ways that, that work differently um, because we're faced with really wicked problems right now and if we don't start thinking about new ways of doing things, we're not going to change that. We're going to be in the old patterns and not getting ourselves out of, you know, the challenges. Emily King, it's been delightful talking to you. Congratulations on the book. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me here. I've loved um, speaking to you about this and, yeah, thanks for having me on your podcast. Where can people buy the book? Uh, all good bookstores. You can go in and ask for it or you can um, search for it online, ReFood by Emily King, and you can buy it online as well. Thanks so much. Well, I'm sure we'll speak to you again. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to This Climate Business. If you like the show, please rate us as it helps others to find us. Ka kite anō.